Hello, it's Sigma Sports presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. And for our festive episode, I've lined up a very special guest in DS, Sherry Pridham. She's a verified Christmas enthusiast, carrying out this podcast holed up in her log cabin, filled with presents on the outskirts of Derby, the North Pole of the East Midlands. She's the Santa Claus of the Pro Peloton. I said it, I'm just digging here. That's enough of the Christmas puns. And now I'd like to steer this podcast back towards the sort of cycling-related tangential nonsense that it has almost become semi-famous for. Let's get on with the pod. Hello, and welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Matt Stevens unplugged by Sports. Sherry Pridham, or Shez, as she likes to be known as, and I go well back. We were rival DS's about 10 years ago when I managed the Sigma Sport racing team and she was at Rally. I was delighted to catch up with Sheree on the eve of her becoming the first female DS at World Tour level with Israel Startup Nation. Oh, and if you're listening to this podcast in the distant future, sorry about all the references to Christmas. Check it out. Well, Shares, uh, thanks very much for um, coming on uh, the podcast. Uh, first and foremost, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming. And secondly, before we sort of crack on with our chat, could you just describe to our listeners where you are and what you can see around you? I'm currently sat in my Swedish built cabin, or it's my woman's cave actually, um, and I'm looking at I don't know all sorts of memorabilia from from the UK domestic scene, and then on the one side of me, I've got. Um, turbo trainer hooked up which has got cobwebs all over it at the minute <laughs> so are you are you kind of in the garden then is it like a a, a woman's shed in the garden it is indeed yes yeah. so it's not it's not we're not allowed to call it a shed oh no uh, what so what it, oh it's a, an alpine lodge it's a, it's a log cabin <laughs> a log cabin i like that i like that um it's a shame that your turbo trainer's covered in dust though but you do appear to have been very busy of late so i'll forgive you Oh, no, I know. Well, Shez, first and foremost, um, I think I've just got to, before we kind of crack on, um, just got to congratulate you on your new appointment with uh, Israel Startup Nation. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in a bit more detail, but um, I'd imagine right now you're kind of buzzing, aren't you? Um, Yeah, the the, the buzz is sort of slowed down a bit and and I've realised the amount of work that we've got to do. So, um, and that's kind of stressing me out because all this travel and, and, I don't know, Brexit and COVID and everything else, I've got things to do, you know. (laughs) Of course, yeah. No, what, so what part of the country are you in? I'm in Derby. You're in Derby, of course, a place that I know very, very well indeed. I believe we, we might have actually bumped into each other in the town centre once or twice over the years. Probably, yeah. Probably. Um, so you're in Derby. Um, how's uh, how's the weather up there? Oh, uh, grim. Grim. And if anybody who's kind of thinking, in our international listeners, Derby is kind of in the north of England, but not properly the north, more like this kind of north midlands how how would you kind of because it's quite um it's quite a point of debate quite often isn't it whether nottingham and derby are in the north or in the midlands where do you like to think it is well when i get asked where derby <laughs> i just sort of say about 12 15 kilometers kind of to the north of nottingham and they all go oh nottingham yeah right. so we leave yeah. it there okay well, that, well that's that's the geography kind of sorted out but yeah it is 
Yeah, it is a bit of a weird time. We're, we're tier four, I am, just on the outskirts of London. What tier are you in at the moment for, for COVID? Oh, I think we are tier three. I didn't check. But you're safe in your little uh, in your little log cabin anyway. Yeah. yeah. Gr- great stuff. Well, what I'd like to do, Shez, if that's all right with you, I mean, we've known each other kind of for, for quite a long time, really, or at least known of each other's existence, and then our paths crossed on the UK domestic scene. Hmm. Um First and foremost, as a rider, when you were managing teams, and then secondly, in the latter part of my career as as a rider, I kind of jumped in there in the car. So we were both DSing at the same time, weren't we? Oh, which wow. was which was quite good fun. So we'll talk about that in a bit. What I'd like to do, if it's okay, as best I can, because I do tend to go off on tangents, and I've no doubt we will. But can can we just rewind your life and just spool just spool back to set everything in a little bit of perspective? Um, because I do know a reasonable amount about you. I've done a bit of research, a bit of stalking. But just tell us how you, your earliest kind of memories of cycling, because cycling obviously is part and parcel of your life. It's in your blood. But how, firstly, did you uh, end up on a bike and loving it so much? Well, so I was always a little bit of a tomboy and, and raced about on sort of a bmx type thing when I was, uh, I don't know, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And... Um, and then I was I was bought a, a racing bike by my parents, and it was a it was a girls' pink rally. Okay. I, I still get traumatised by that, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, it had drop handlebars, and I actually did my first race on that, which was you might know it is the Argus Cycle Tour down in Cape Town. Oh yeah, of course, yeah, I do, yeah. So um, that was my first ever race. Didn't do any training for it. Um, and I can remember there were about four and a half thousand people entered into it. Um, I mean, nowadays there's about 40, 50,000 people start. But back in them days, I, I was 11. So I, and, I, and I actually won the 11-year-old to 13-year-old category. Um, and that kind of kicked me off into me thinking I was a professional bike rider and then little did I know back then um, I actually turned pro in Cape Town when I was 16 years old so I was dead set on what I actually wanted to do um, and that was to ride for GB um, in the Tour de France and yeah. I, I, I mean I didn't realise the enormity of of all of that back then but um, just to just to give you a little bit of insight, my my dad was in the Royal Navy, so we travelled around a fair bit, and and hence why we were based in Cape Town for pretty much all of my um, schooling and university. Um, and hence the accent as well, of course. Well, yeah, apparently it comes out now and then, but because um, you've got a definite Derby twang in there, but then a little bit of South African kind of woven into it as well. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I tend to if I'm get, if I forget angry, the South African comes out even more. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. But yeah, so and then I left, I left Cape Town, South Africa, on my 18th birthday, yep. and I've probably been back about four times in the last I don't know 30 years, so. Um, I haven't been back to SA a lot. Right. So, opportunity, I mean, you obviously, cycling was in your family. You, you got this bike really, really young. Uh, you were kind of winning straight off the bat. Um, but back then, it was strange. When, when you look at, although things have changed a little bit, and, and again, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent for which I apologise, but it, I think it's relevant. You know, the opportunities kind of five or six years ago for, for women in cycling uh weren't great they're in a far better place but we're still without a women's tour de france which hopefully will come in the future but back in the 1980s 
when I went to see the tour and was inspired to turn pro or try and turn pro, there was a tour feminin that ran in parallel with the Tour de France at that particular time. So back then, 30, 40 years ago, there were almost more opportunities than there are now, which is kind of absurd, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, to be fair, when I when I went into the international scene, I had um, much more opportunity for stage racing than there is now for for the woman. And of course, mm. but now there's all the world tour for the, for the girls and the women that that are coming through the ranks. So, in one sense, that has developed in terms of teams and so on. But in terms of racers, there's probably less racing nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was looking back through some of your results and uh, the Tour Feminine. I mean, it had a few different names, but one of the tours that you, you, that you rode, it was like nearly two weeks, wasn't it? It's was a proper, proper tour. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think most most years it was 12 to 14 stages and some of those involved double days, you know. Yeah. Um, so they were, they were really, really long. And what are your kind of memories of, I mean, did you ride for various teams or was it always GB when you rode, when you rode those tours? No, I think I rode two, maybe three with GB and the rest were with trade teams. So, um, and, and then I, I think the first UCI women's team that I rode for was um, Equipe Mazza. They were okay. in, in Geneva uh, and I did one tour with them before I, uh, before I retired. And, and what, do you have fond memories of those times or oh, do you look no. back? Yeah, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I did. I mean... Some some of the some of the stage races we did we didn't have mechanics or swanniers so we were making wow. bottles and you know washing our own kit and you know sort of just just getting by really um, and and I think that's if you talk to any of my generation the Kathy Marcells and Ina Yoka Tettenbergs and, and girls like that that really stood us in in good stead for for some of the career directions that we actually took and and ended up in you know I think. Uh, it certainly, certainly, I don't know, made you hard in terms of um, how to how to prepare yourself for for the real world. Yeah, because back then, I mean, and, and there were similarities, maybe slightly not quite as extreme, but back then there was no team buses, even at a high level, riding internationally. You used to wash your own kit in the base in the hotel room, didn't you? Yeah, I- pretty much always prepare your own bottles. Swan years would be there sometimes, but I mean, it's amazing that you, that that you rode at that level, but were like tending to your own bikes you know washing your own stuff it is quite amazing but you're quite right it does it gives you a real sense of perspective doesn't it and and, you know and 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 obviously then you kind of value your rest but um i think you grow up really really quickly as well oh yeah for sure you needed to be streetwise and of course we were doing particularly leaving the uk and then basing basing ourselves in europe itself um you know, nowadays it's kind of the norm, but back then um, it was almost unheard of, you know. Um, and those days were interesting, you know, d- d- where, where you ended up living was could could be quite interesting, you know. <laughs> Give us a couple of examples then. I can remember, I can remember a, a barn. Um, right. and, and it was warm, but it was a barn nonetheless. Right. And then there was sort of a dormitory type style thing where about eight of us were crammed into... I guess a shed size sort of thing where you know you were almost on top of each other and then you know as you moved to the to the bigger type teams and you you might have shared a room with a one, one teammate so I've, I've I've done the whole extreme yeah yeah I mean uh, 
Yeah, my I, for for years I stayed when I was an ACBB and it was a big team. But I was in a I was in a you know it, it kind of foretold my future. I, I was in a prison cell um, in a police station, so we had bars on the windows at our service course. Um, so yeah, you, you you do learn a lot. And if you don't mind me asking, Shez, did you was that funded by yourself or what kind of it? expenses were you kind of um, afforded at, at that level pretty much funded by myself yeah. uh, it wasn't until kind of the latter part of my years when i rode for mape and for Ikeep Mazza that we got sort of a, a small retainer every month should i should i say so that was something in somewhere between 250 and 400 pound a month yeah it was for for the racing months only so, you know, if you if you started your season in March and you raced through to end of September, that was that was how you were, you know, sort of remunerated. Uh, but very often you didn't get anything, you know, it was almost on a promise, you know. But in those days, you know, I had I had some good friends and, and obviously I was with Eddie at the time and we, um, you know, we, we managed to support my career. Um, yeah, I think it shows, I mean, back then, because, you know, you, you you kind of have this aspiration of turning pro, whether male or female, and because you, you, you look at the kind of the people that you want to be like, the kind of races you want to do, but then to get there, it's not easy, is it? it? You kind of learn a lot about yourself, and it's, you know, generally, you do need the support of parents. I, I remember, again, excuse for bringing my, myself into the mix, but my mum sending me, like, food parcels uh, yeah. over to Paris, like, with bits of cake in and stuff and pot noodle and you know a cup of soups and, and marmite and stuff like that because i i was on i earned 25 pounds a week mm. yeah and, and that was basically for all my food uh and if i didn't and if i run out of money i run out of money and so yeah. I, I had a part-time job in the winter at marks and spencers you know it's to, to fund my what i wanted to do yeah, that's it. I mean, I can remember the good old days when, you know, you virtually scrape the pennies together to buy a pint of milk. Yeah, yeah. Those are the good old days, you know, and I think <laughs> stood us in good stead. It, it, it is. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because you learn without even knowing it. You, you do grow up very, very quickly. You learn how to budget. You, you quite often will learn another language. Um, but you... Um, it grounds you, doesn't it? And I think there's a lot of skills that you learn when you've come up. I'm not, I'm not saying that younger DSs and younger managers, you know, um, are, are kind of aren't in a strong position because they haven't experienced what people like yourself and myself have experienced. But it does give you this really deep 360 degree kind of view yeah. uh, on, on on what it takes. Yeah, for sure. And 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 like you say, there's no disrespect to the newer type managers, DSs now, because their role is almost a different. You know, we've had to adapt to, you know, the training peaks and the power files and the and everything else. So you know, you what you find is the younger DSs or the younger team managers are actually on that level already because they, you know, it's straight off the bat where we've had to kind of learn all of that. Um, I don't know about you, Matt, but I, I only started using a power meter, and it was probably not a reliable one at that. But it, back in the nineteen ninety nine, you know, and that was only about eighteen months before I retired. Right. I, 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 you know what? I didn't actually use one when I was a pro. I didn't use one. I only it's when I jumped on. Do you remember the, the thing called a King Cycle? Yeah. I mean, you, that the uh, one of the earliest kind of rigs to do physiological testing on. But, but back then, a power meter. If anybody's listening, back in nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, the early days of power meters. If you wanted to buy one to put on your bike, there's only one company that made them. It's SRM, wasn't it? Yeah. And they would cost you back then around two and a half to three thousand pounds, and they weighed about two kilos, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
there's quite a lot of, uh, I remember people kind of using them for training but they were so heavy they took them off for racing basically um, yeah but um, but no I, I didn't actually ever use one at all even in my days at Sigma I'd, I never used a power meter until I'd actually retired so I never raced ever uh, knowing what my power was um, which I, I kind of um, I don't regret but I kind of would have been nice to have looked back to see what my numbers were compared to riders now yeah yeah now we know a little bit about it on of course Swift and everything else and and what and okay so you you raced again you did eight tours you did a couple of Jura roses as well so over over a long period of time and then you had a really nasty accident in 2006 which kind of derailed your your racing ambition yeah yeah i mean i'd come back from from france at the time for the national road race championships and i'd, I'd got a I, I don't know, a couple of days before the nationals and um, just almost almost home actually um, kilometre and a half from home and a, and a car overshot a, a, a junction and hit me side head on and and that sort of left me a bit KO'd really um, some nasty injuries from that um, and sadly the car was stolen um, so we never ever found the, the driver but um, you know it, it just it was almost a turning point in my career that accident because um, I, I'd obviously had to I had several surgeries on both shoulders and my wrist was a bit mangled and various other bits and bobs um, but the sponsors that I'd had um, at the time just said look you know you can't race now and this is how the, the whole management thing sort of kicked off and uh, and Eddie was uh, Eddie White was um, with a junior road squad at the time and uh, my particular sponsor, American Bicycle Group, at the time said, look, let's build a little junior squad. And mm. we had four junior junior boys on that squad. And that sort of kick-started me into, into where I am today. So it was never really pre-planned. It was just this one event in your life that basically meant that you couldn't no longer race. Yeah. Uh, so then you just had to rethink and these opportunities. Well, it sounds like the, there was, you had some a good support group around you who kind yeah. of gave you a kind of... Um, the next the, an opportunity to take the next step were you da- kind of daunted by that or did it did, were you interested in that kind of opportunity uh, immediately uh, I, I think I'd, I'd sort of shot gone Eddie with the juniors for about 18 months anyway so I was learning all the time um, being in the team car with him and then um, obviously when I got the opportunity with the junior squad um, I, I could be a little bit more hands-on but the way I dealt with my partners and, and in terms of sponsorship I'm talking about yeah um, it, it's sort of the way I dealt with them then and, and I'm still friends with some of those now you know um, um, Conti Tires for, for example um, Shelley Childs supported me with pr- pretty much all my Tour de France um, tires and, and, and equipment um, so I've learned that back then to sort of um, present well and and have good presentations and CVs. But back then we didn't have we didn't have computers like like we use computers now. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember again. I remember back into the nineties um, taking a CV to a team manager, and I basically made a scrapbook. That's it. Of yeah. Cutting cuttings from cycling weeklies and newspapers, um, and bits of. And, and a kind of a CV that I typed on a typewriter and stuck into a book yeah. and gave it to a teammate. It literally was a scrapbook. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and looking back it's almost kind of laughable there was but that's what that's the only way that we we had to communicate wasn't it really that's it yeah and even team presentations you know we worked on that we used to go around the bike shows you know with when we had the teams and so on uh with big scrapbooks full of what your what your aims and ambitions were for that particular team and you'd walk around with these big presentation files and hand them out sort of thing and i guess through all this process you're kind of learning on the fly because it, it's because there's no real there's no school of being a ds there's no school of being a cycling team manager i know i know there's courses run by the uci now yeah. uh, for certain accreditations but it is it's completely vocational uh, qualification isn't becoming a manager and and just finding yourself in um in a position of, of you know relative power influence and, and importantly trust Oh, oh, absolutely, uh, and and that's that's it in a nutshell, really. And, and obviously, at the top of that, it's it's about people management at the yeah. end of the day. So, um, yeah, you you can't teach it, as they say. Um, it's it's kind of uh, the book of life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and to the I know I've read numerous kind of interviews, especially recently since your appointment with the Israel uh, Startup Nation, about the fact that you've never really perceived yourself as, as a woman DS, you're just a DS. And I think I think that's fundamentally very, very important. But there must have been a time, especially 10, 15 years ago, when you were making your way on the UK domestic scene, when you were the only woman. There, there's a few swan years on a couple of the teams I seem to remember, mm-hmm. but you, you were the only, the only woman in a, in a completely and utterly male-dominated sport. I mean, yeah. how did you find that? Or were you treated... Because I... Obviously, I spoke to you, interacted with you a fair bit, but never really knew you kind of closely. I'm just wondering how you, how that was for you. Did you feel very welcomed and it was completely normal or were you always fighting a little bit? I mean, not necessarily fighting, but you had to, and I think I've used the term earn your respect in a sense. Yeah. And it was a little bit difficult in the early days because they're, they're all of a sudden in a man's world is a woman in a car, you know. Yeah. And and the perception there is like, oh, you know, bloody hell, there's a woman in a car. Watch out kind of thing. Yeah. But, you know, so long as you are doing your job and, you know, I, I feel I'm, I'm a pretty competent driver anyway, certainly now. But, um, yeah, it's, you just earn your respect and, you, and it never really bothered me. I mean, bear in mind, winding back till when I was sort of 11, 12 years old, I didn't race against girls then i had to race against the junior boys right so it's kind of it it's kind of how um my whole sort of career and my whole life has been you know i've been this girl this woman in 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 a lonely world almost it's kind of it is weird though isn't it especially now when you look back and you say well i had to earn respect whereas if you're a bloke you didn't really have to earn a respect just because you were bloke it appeared that because you're a woman in a male-dominated sport, you had to work even harder to be accepted, which yeah. is which is kind of ludicrous in many ways. But it but is, it is. But but there there are certain DSs that arrive on on the domestic scene, say for, say for argument's sake, hmm. who you don't know, and they themselves also have to earn respect. You know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit the same, but it was a little bit more difficult in the early days because it just it just wasn't heard of particularly. Yeah. Yeah, but you. But it was a. You spent a long time. Um, primarily, I mean, the first team was Merlin, wasn't it? Was was that off the that was off the bat? Was that the junior squad that kind of morphed into like an under twenty three team? That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's where we started. 
And I, I think I, I ended up signing one of the lads from your team, actually, for Sigma Sports. <laughs> so so thank, thank, I can't remember his name. Oh, God, what was his name? Big lad from Nottingham. Yeah. Steve, oh, Steve. Steve Adams, yeah. Steve, yeah, Steve Adams, yeah. yeah. So uh, I, he did ride with you, and then uh, we picked him up for, for Sigma Sports. I think we um, I think we might have traded a few riders over the, over the years, actually, oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we did. Thinking back, Steve Lampier was one that I think we both we both managed. And Ross Lampier. Yep, yep. No, it was. Um, I mean, how about your time on the British circuit? Because, okay, it was never kind of perfect, but there was a time, probably at the back end of the kind of noughties, so 2010 to kind of 2014 kind of time, mm. 2009, when it was a pretty decent scene. And, you know, we had six or seven Conti teams battling for that vital place in the Tour of Britain. Yeah. And it was a proper, it was, a, I used to love it. I used to, I was managing and riding and I really, really loved the scene that there was, and there was a, a Back then, there was a fair fair amount of opportunity, wasn't there? Oh, for sure. I mean, those are the those are the real good days when we. And back then, you don't you don't appreciate the budgets that you had. But our yeah. budgets, particularly, you know, from from my point of view, the rally days, you know, were certainly well. Hell, we could run three or four teams out of the budget now. You know. Yeah. Um, but those those certainly were the good days. You know, we had a really good. Um, a, good opportunity was rally because we competed um in rally mexico rally uh, south africa rally america so we had um, loads of opportunity to, to race um globally but we were also able to race a double program and race a double program properly so we would be podiuming in canada for instance but we'd also be winning a round of the tour series here yeah yeah i mean that was the thing i mean uh, uh, you wouldn't believe it but that a lot of the, the conti teams back then anybody who's listening you know there there was this really nice five or six year period where um we had a lot of races the tour series the premier calendars and then the tour of britain that the, there was a, another domestic tour as well the tour of yorkshire came latterly right. um and then we would all and to get a place and a ride in the Tour of Britain, you had to have an element of your program riding a 1.2s or 1.1s, didn't you? Uh, you know, yeah. So you had to run a dual program, which meant you had to have a particular budget. And they, they were kind of the halcyon days of, of, uh, of British cycling over the last few years from a domestic pro side of things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But uh, And what did you kind of learn through that process I mean, w w when you look back? Um, I guess to to appreciate those opportunities that we had then and even even some of the the riders that we had then they would still sort of have a little bit of a whinge or a dig about the fact that they weren't racing but when you look at that race program particularly for the team we had then rally um it was great you know um and you know i think just an appreciation for those for those days you know yeah and and when did you become aware or if you were I hope I'm not going to get too kind of psychological now of your kind of management style. Are you, can you step away from yourself and appreciate the kind of style you have, or is it something you don't really think about? You just do. Um, no, I think I just do it. I, if, yeah. if I think about it, it means I'm, you know, f for me personally, it means I'm potentially worrying about something, but you know, the, the, the more the years have gone on, the less I think about it. And it just, you know, I just have my style, but I, I'd say the same, you know, I'd say the same to any DS, you know, potentially they, they will manage one way. I'll manage the other, but the result will end up pretty much the same, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one thing as well, I mean, you're going to be next year is going to be so exciting for you. I mean, uh, I, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but the reason I'm kind of dwelling so much so long on the past is because, 
all those experience all of those experiences should i say mm. have led to this kind of point and have essentially qualified you haven't they you know so i mean again because of our experiences being quite similar in relation to managing domestic teams um it's, it's a busy job wasn't it because you'd be on the phone to the riders looking after their welfare kind of 20 24 7 quite often which is fine yeah. you'd be entering races you'd be doing all the logistics uh you'd be there at the weekend in the cars you'd be doing training camps it was um most nights during the season, I've been like wouldn't get to bed till like one o'clock in the morning, and I was had a, and I had another job as well. But it, but it really did, again very much like your experience as a rider for me. I learned so much very very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the other dimension for me was when I took ownership of the team. I mean, right. My workload just tripled um, in terms of corporate management and contracts and overseeing the budgets and and making sure the sponsors were happy particularly now with with social media being so um prominent you know in everything that we do yeah the whole that whole dimension changed for me and and you know sometimes it would it would frustrate you know really frustrate me because i couldn't focus on the job at hand um and i was having to stress about other things um so it's certainly given me like a 360 certainly a 360 um how to how to survive in um cycle management <laughs> yeah it's, it's kind of sink or swim isn't it because there's nobody to kind of fall back on and and although i know i know you had a reasonable kind of budget it didn't extend to having you know uh, members of staff for every single role you it, there's almost like a homespun feel about the smaller conti teams where you are just constantly multitasking that's it yeah i mean i was fortunate that i'd got some real good staff members around me and i and you know everybody knows old pete mooney who's been with me since i don't know 1786 probably um, <laughs> But, um, you know, I've had some real good people that have been with me solidly for the last eight to 10 years, which has been nice. Um, and we, I, th- I think it's worth giving a big shout out to Bob Rouse as well, Rooster, because you, you you had Rooster as a manager, as a mechanic, and so did I. Mm. Uh, a b- bit of a Nottingham kind of legend, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly is. Um, I'll tell you what we're going to do, if you don't mind, uh, Shez. Mm. Um, have you listened to any of our podcasts? before uh, very briefly yes i had very a bit- briefly okay. Yeah. okay well there's a section in the show um and i'm going to do it about halfway now called guess that snack um have you heard of guess that snack uh, yeah, I can see what's coming. Yeah, Go yeah. On. Okay, okay. You say, you sounded a bit doubtful. You're not looking at your watch and trying to dart out of your log cabin, are you? No, 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 no. no. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we're just going to ne- we just need to get uh, kind of you in to fire up the jingle because it's time for guess that snack. Guess that snack. Guess that snack. Oh yeah, guess that snack. That was our very own Cecile Utrob Ludwig with the vocals for that. Um, that's the jingle. Uh, and this is Guess That Snack. Now, Sheree, I'm going to explain the rules, okay? It's pretty straightforward. But basically, I've got four four snacks here. I'm going to tell mm-hmm. you what they are. And then I'm going to crunch each one uh, in the microphone. You've got to guess what the snack is, basically. But you won't know which one I'm doing. Okay. So, I'll, But first and foremost, I'll, descri- I'll tell you what the snacks are. Okay? Mm-hmm. So... We've got popcorn. So it's it's butter kissed. Other brands are available. Toffee popcorn. Okay, you got that in your head. Mm-hmm. This, considering this is going to be like a, a, a Christmas edition of Matt Stevens Unplugged, I've got some Tesco crispy coated peanuts flavoured by pigs in blankets. <laughs> so nuts with a crispy coating on that's 
flavoured with bacon. All right. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of Christmas kind of element. We've got some standard potato crisps, um, cracked pepper flavour. Okay, so just a regular potato crisp. And then finally, to add a bit of, inter of an international feel to proceedings, considering we do go out to a wide audience, tortilla chips. Uh -huh. Okay, so I'll run through them again. We've got toffee popcorn, crispy coated peanuts, pigs in blankets flavour, um, festive styly, and then we've got a regular uh, potato uh, crisps, black pepper flavour, and tortilla chips. Mm -hmm. So are you ready? Are you relaxed? Are you focused? Yeah, yeah, ready for action. Start off with snack number one. Okay, listen closely. I want to get nice and close to the mic. Okay, here we go. So it's coming up now. Ooh. I'm going to go for tortilla chips. Yes, it's a tortilla straight off the bat. Shez. Good start. That's a good start. Okay, I'm just finishing chewing that one because that was a bit of a big bit. Right, okay. <laughs> Next up. Stay focused because you're doing well. Good, good start. Okay. It's going in now, all right? Mm -hmm. Here we go. Talk um, to another one. Talk to another one for you? Another one. Okay. Here we go. I'll get nice and close to the mic with a pop shield. Hold on. Here we go. I'm going to go for crisps, the pepper flavoured crisps. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, it was the popcorn. It was the popcorn. Yeah. 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 I'll give you half a point because you knew the error of your ways. I did. So, next up. Okay. It's going in. Listen closely. <laughs> that thought would be the pepper crisps. No! <laughs> no! Oh, no! Right, finally. What's this? Oh my god! Oh, that uh, peanuts peanuts. That that was the pepper crisp. <laughs> oh no! One and a half points um, for shares. I'll guess that snack. Well, I just hope the second half of the podcast picks up after that morale. Although saying that, we we had uh, we interviewed Sepp Kuss last week, um, and boy did that lad struggle. Oh. I mean, a, gr a great climber, but guess that snack. Oof. Anyway, moving on yes. to, to, I think, um, after that brief interlude. Yeah. Thanks for participating, by the way. Uh, to the here and now, mm. um, because you've got the appointment with um, Israel's, Israel Startup Nation for next year. An amazing team. 32 riders, I'm right, for next year, haven't you? Correct, yep. Yeah, 32 riders. Uh, some of the biggest names in the sport. Um, can you... I know how you kind of... Um, got the place in the team because you're very good at what you do but can you just tell people um the process that led to you joining uh, the new squad well as you well know i'm um, having my own team um was getting more and more difficult for it to be sustainable um and even more so during pandemic and covid issues and so on and uh, we sort of really struggled you know to to I guess find another sponsor that was going to be with us for not just the one year, but 
you know, I always tend to look for three-year deals, and we were pretty close, to be fair, to to sealing a deal for for the next three years. And then, as we went through lockdown, and lockdown just extended itself, um, unfortunately, that opportunity um, disappeared. Yeah, and this was with Vitus Pro Cycling. That was your team, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, you know, although we got those those Vitus and 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 Brother UK, obviously were were committed f- with us for next year. Um, we all know that we need cash to operate. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I, I did I did say to the riders, look, you know, there might be there might be a, a case that we have to drop down to elite level uh, while we try and survive COVID because, um, you know, the, the one thing with me, Matt, is that I, I like to do things right. And I was concerned that I didn't well, I didn't want to deliver half a job, yeah. and, and you know, do do not do it properly, as I say. Uh, and then, long story short, we lost another uh, smaller sponsor. And then I thought, okay, I'm starting to panic now. So I thought, well, I'm still going to push this team through. It's what I do. I can survive. I'll survive another year, but I'm going to need a job. So I went out and started looking for, and it frightened the hell out of me. Real time, lifetime jobs. You so know, an actual job outside, just a normal job to pay the bills. Oh, blimey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would, yeah, terrifying. Terrifying. Uh, I, I did. I did. I did the police force. I did. I did the army. I did shop assistant. I did the hot. You did the police force as well. I did everything. Yeah. Wow. Um. Anyway, I, I didn't get much. Um, I, I think I, out of forty jobs I applied for, I think I got five responses. Right. Um. And so I started thinking, what can I do? And I thought, well, can I? Can I send? As, you know, like a, an email to Will Portings. I thought, well, well, why the bloody hell not? Yeah. So I did. So I emailed four or five, and I was quite, I was quite sort of super keen on going to or messaging teams, speaking with teams that I thought I could fit well into. So I did, and I, I, I messaged, emailed four or five Will Tour teams, um, and the first team to come back to me with a with a response was ISN Israel right. Nation and then it, um, and bearing in mind those guys the world tour scene was full throttle with grand tour after grand tour with classics thrown in there and all sorts yeah so I received a phone call um, during the Tour de France from um, from the general manager Chell Colstrom yeah and um I liked what I heard straight away, you know, because Chell was more interested in in my my sort of what I could bring to the team. Not necessarily he knew he knew what I'd done to this point as, in terms of having a CV, but he was he was super keen to hear about my ambitions, my goals, and, and the direction I wanted to go in. And you know, I've, I've always said if I get the opportunity one day, I want to be a DS at Will Tour level in a Grand Tour. Yeah. Um, so I never heard anything for a while, and of course we started creeping towards November, uh, and then we sort of. This is really in a nutshell now, but we sort of had a board meeting with Sherry Pudham Racing, and I pretty much made up my mind that we couldn't push this team through because there were, there were three main factors really: doing it correct and doing it properly for our, for our partners and sponsors. Yeah, um, and and also having having the fear of the pandemic still being there and uh, you know could, could we be wasting more cash yeah. when needed and the other thing was my own happiness as well as the riders because yeah. I, I felt that 
okay, if I'm going to have to do a full-time job doing whatever, am I going to be happy coming home at three o'clock in the morning from, I don't know, Newcastle Crit or something uh, and having to work a full-time job? And I think by the time I came back from that board meeting, I, I knew the right thing to do was, you know, to, to close the door on the team. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's pretty much what I did. Um, although I wasn't expecting what happened, literally coincidentally, what happened in the next hour was a contract offer came from ISN. In the next hour, it yeah. happened. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's serendipitous in so many ways. But it, the thing is, it's, um, and I think it's the thing for me as well, uh, Shez, is that the whole, this whole thing has been so well received. You know, social media kind of exploded, you know, yeah. and um, obviously, let's just make no bones about it. The fact you're the, the first ever women's ds at world tour level is one of the reasons but first and foremost as you know your experience you, you, they're not just going to give you a job just because you're a woman are they? it's because you 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 deserve it but you but at the same but at the same time you are almost like uh, by default uh, a trailblazer as well so yeah. it's, inter it's interesting isn't it well, yeah, I mean, I didn't, uh, t to be honest with you, I, when the reality dawned and they were going to do the announcement and things like that, I just genuinely thought, oh, well, we're going to be busy for a day, you know, and the, and the British scene is going to be, you know, I'll have some messages from a few friends, but I was not expecting the response that I received, not just one day, but a whole week, two weeks afterwards. Uh, yeah. it, it was absolutely mind-blowing. and. <laughs> I think by the time I got to day four, I was constantly almost 11, 12 hours on the phone. And we were talking like live radio in, in Colombia, radio stations in Canada, TV shows in this place, that place, uh, the big, all the big newspapers, uh, Zoom calls, you name it. And it, yeah. it, it was like, it was just, it was just mind blowing. Um, and then I started feeling a little bit sorry or guilty, shall I say, for, for my other DSs. And I was like, oh, can this please stop now? Yeah, I want to get on with, crack on with the job and, and, and so on. But I, when I say significance, Matt, it, 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 because I was receiving so many personal messages from people that I, you know, no idea who they are, but in particular from young girls or, or women who absolutely would love to do what i've just been given the opportunity for but how do they do that yeah um, and i think one uh message i received was from a 14 year old um spanish girl um saying thank you to me and it was so heartfelt that she was so, so thankful that i'd opened the door for her because her dream when she's when she grows up she said was to be a ds on the movistar team well that you know that's 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 so touching. That's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, that's what it's all about. I mean, when you look, take that little moment, Sheree, you know, and look at, you know, because you're, look at what you've done, look at the years you've been involved, and, and that kind of, encapsula kind of encapsulates it. You wouldn't have thought that you'd have got to that point because it was never really an intention. It's just evolved. Yeah. But, you know, everything that's happened to you now is because you deserve it and because you're very good at what you do. But to resonate so strongly with 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 women and with girls who don't have the same kind of opportunity um no. for for reason well god knows why but that just seems to be the, the way that it's been but things are changing and, it, and it's really great and to get that kind of response i mean I, I didn't know that and that's that's really really touching yeah and i received several like that you know right across the board and people thanking me well women thanking me for you know for showing them the way showing them the light so i, I kept hearing these 
you know, trailblazers and that. I thought, well, actually, I have got, aside from my job, I have got a responsibility. And, and, mm-hmm. and it, yeah, um, I don't think about it like that because I'm just normal old Chez, you know, sat here in my Swiss cabin, you know. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, because you've you basically just got to get, get on with the job. You yeah. happen to be a woman doing a job in, in let again, let's say in a, in a man's world. Unfortunately, yeah. I don't like to use that term, but when you look at it statistically, there's far more men than women working in world tour cycling and, and the men's side of things. Oh, um, but you've just, it's the thing is, it's just got to be, become normalised. Uh, so it's not just oh look, there's a woman doing that job. It's like no, no, she's just the best person for the job. Yeah, uh, re- regardless of who you are, um, you know. But you've broken down a big barrier. Uh, and it's been an un- a barrier that's kind of un- been unspoken. I mean, there has been there've been a few women in the past who've been involved with men's teams, but not to this kind of level. Um, but you must be, as I said, the kind of my first question to you is the about the buzz and the excitement that's died down a little bit now, obviously, because you've got a job to do, haven't you? So how is that looking? How is the planning for twenty twenty one going, and how are you involved in that? Well, so we've just, I've literally been back a few days from uh, a sports director's camp in Girona. So, you know, obviously we all know a training camp, but I've never been involved in an actual management stroke DS camp. And that's exactly what it was. We had five solid days around a table, uh, you know, laptops open, and we just worked through the the entire World Tour program. There's over, I don't know, I think 330 race days. And we just worked through selections and work through the riders and I think it was a little bit frustrating for me because I felt like I felt like the the, the, the girl in the back back room of the class not saying anything but I had to take it all in and just yeah. you know because I have to learn the flow of, of of the early season races and the classics and what these riders do to build up for the classics and then of course the GC riders and how the sprint train works in that so I kind of sat there for two or three days and I didn't really say much and I was really annoyed about that because when I'm in my element I, I'm not a quiet person but I do I am pretty much a, a reserved person so I don't shout from the rooftops per se but um I wanted to get involved, but I thought, you know, I can't really have my input just yet because I need to learn the flow and I need to learn about these races. Of course, most of us have heard about all these races and we see the races on the telly, but actually knowing about the parkour and the, uh, you know, what weather might be like or whatever we look at nowadays is, is something I've got to learn pretty quick. And then, of course, the other side of things is getting to know the riders yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, that, that is fascinating you say that, but I think, you know, I, and I can, I can understand your frustration, but it's like the first day at work in any job that you're new to, although cycling has been your bread and butter for years, uh, the scale of moving straight from Conti in the UK to World Tour is, it's a big, big jump. This make no bones. You clearly have the, the right personality, the right traits, the right experience, but the practical nature of working in a World Tour team, it's going to take a while to adjust to, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and and. and a, and one of the most important traits of being a DS and being and being a manager of people is the ability to sometimes just listen and yeah. take it all in. And, and if you, I think if you were trying to, without, if you don't mind me saying, if you were trying to step in early doors, it, I, I think you've done the right thing in just listening, absorbing it all, and um, 
and eventually when you've when you've built up enough confidence and kind of knowledge on the way the team works it's as simple as that isn't it uh the way it kind of ticks then you'll become increasingly more embedded in making decisions and stuff but it but but i can understand you just want to jump straight in don't you yeah, I mean, you know, I think I can rewind a little bit because we've we've had three or four Zoom meetings as a management group before we actually got to Girona and sat around a table almost face to face. But the first Zoom meeting, I, I, I sort of came in and I, I, I wanted to smile from ear to ear because there I was, albeit looking into a computer screen, I was looking at DSs that I absolutely look up to and, and, and you know, have a, so much respect for. So, you know, the classics DSs like Dirk de Mol and Lionel Marie and, and Claudio Cotti and all these guys, and there's me now working with them, you know. And then when I got to meet yeah. them face to face, um. I mean, what what I couldn't have asked to be in a, in a better group, um, you know, to start my next chapter with. Uh, it, it, I mean, and then you've got it, you're talking about it's about the the kind of ex- experienced DSs that you're working with, and obviously um, you've got the man that set the team up, Sylvan Adams, as well. He's a bit of a character, isn't he? You know, it's a really kind of driven individual. But then the lineup you've got in terms of riders next year. Mm. I mean, I mean, we have to talk about Chris Froome coming across on a, on a three year deal, mm. but then Mike Woods, for example, you know, um, Seth Van Mark. I mean, it really is a team that should be firing on all cylinders through the classics and through the grand tours as well. There's a real uh, new balance to the team, isn't there? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think from from a management group, we um, we can look at the whole race program and potentially, obviously, go in there with a the strategy and 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 know that we are you know have a chance to win those bike races. Yeah. No, there's some, and some good, some interesting young riders. What like Carl Frederick Hagen is an interesting signing from Lotto as well. Some real untapped potential, I think, for the Grand Tours, which must be. I mean, what are you? What is your role exactly going to be? I know you're going to be a DS, but you look at especially World Tour teams. Mm-hmm. Many of the DSs have kind of um, different roles as well as sitting in the car for a race. There, some DSs actually coach riders. So, what is your particular role going to be, yet, or is that yet to be determined? No, no, no. Um, I know, I know pretty much how I'm starting the year, um, and um, y- you know, my, my ambition. I think with with Rick Verbrugger, uh, head DS, and then obviously Chell Colsham, um, who's our general manager. We sort of sat down together, and I, we got an idea of potentially what I could be good at. I mean, it's a bit like. If you think about it, it's a bit like a, junior, a last year junior stepping into um, first year senior. Sometimes yeah. those riders don't know um, what they are yet, and it's a bit the same with me. You know, I've done all this DSing on a sort of three sixty spin, but I actually don't quite know what I'm going to be very good at. Or in so because there'll be a new focus now because you won't be doing like the admin. You won't be you know uh, filling up all the you you you'll, you'll be. Obviously, there will be a lot of jobs to do, but there will be a lot more particular focus. And it's like you say, it's about bringing out what the kind of strengths you've got. All these experiences, but it's focusing on what you're really, really good at and harnessing that. I guess. Yeah, I think that I think the, the one for me to take home was what DS1, DS2, and DS3 does, because yeah. obviously, like you just said, I I did it all before, but it's actually I think that the program that I've been given, it, I cross. I've been fortunate that they've crossed me doing a um, DS1, DS2, and DS3. 
Um, so I'm getting a feel and a flavour for the whole, you know, for the whole circle of what those DSs do. But there is a hell of a lot of paperwork that goes along with that because we have to submit our strategies um, to, to all the DSs. And we were very much an open group in terms of uh, even if that DS is sat at home watching the particular race on TV, we still have that opportunity to have contact with that particular DS yeah. if we need to. So we are very open book in terms of sharing knowledge and, and help and supporting each other for, for, for you know for that particular race um, and and likewise uh, all the staff you know so um, it's just getting to know what you know I think there's over 70 staff members and what, wow. <laughs> what, what actually does um, and I'm still learning to be fair yeah I mean do you know what your I, I know there's going to be a lot of what well quite a few what ifs um in relation to 2021 especially the earlier part and there's a yeah. few races already that have been cancelled but do you know what your first race will be yet when you put on that kit you, you get the polo on you, you get in the get in the car and you start getting that left hand arm tan that every ds has <laughs> um yeah I, I do actually i'm i'm starting fingers crossed at etoile Bessage. okay so my first well, i think i'm ds2 if i remember right you might not get too much of a suntan on that race no, um, but l- l- let's be honest <laughs> woolly hat isn't it and that sort of thing but yeah so that that's i mean that's brilliant i mean um what do you think uh, are you most looking forward to about about this new role um I, I don't know the whole just the whole buzz and you know just doing what we love you know i just can't still can't believe that the opportunity that i've got in front of me it's just, it's just mad um but I, ca- I cannot wait to get in the car and get working with the riders and um i had a nice little talk with step by mark um just before we flew home uh, and he said you know how do you feel and i said look i says i, I don't as i said i don't see myself as a as a woman a female ds i'm just a ds and he says well he says we actually discuss it as riders and you know and that was kind of nice for him to say look you know you just crack on and do what you do because we're going to do what we do um which was nice you know coming from a from a you know an established rider like set yeah i i think it's nice well not nice actually important there seems to be i think i don't know whether there's been an active resilience to kind of women doing the job that you're moving into doing. I don't know whether that's the case or whether it's cultural where women have felt fearful of applying or it hasn't, or because of the kind of very masculine nature of professional cycling and male cycling, there wouldn't ever be an opening, but to to have gone into the team already and and be made to feel so welcome um, is, I mean, is, is important. I mean, it, it, that's the only way it should be. But by the same token, to be welcomed like that, especially by a statesman as SEP, uh, that, that must make you feel really kind of welcome. It, it did. I mean, uh, I have to say right from right from the first contact, like I said, you know, when the general manager phoned me, I, I already felt that if he'd taken the time just to pick the phone up during the Tour de France to speak to me, then that is the team I want to be involved with, you know. Definitely. Uh, definitely. It, you know, right, right through the whole bodies. I mean, you know, there's no, you know, there's no hiding that the job in front of me is going to be very difficult. There's going to be some difficult days, and and there's no doubt I'm going to make mistakes, just like my colleagues might make mistakes. Um, but I've already said to the riders that I'm looking after. 
you know, we've got to learn. I've got to learn this job quickly. I've, I've never been responsible for two or three riders uh, sort of on a weekly basis. So I've got to learn that whole process as well. So uh, who, who, if you don't mind me asking, who are you going to be looking after? I'm looking after Alex Dowse and Alex Catterford. The two Alexes, right. Okay. Alex C and Alex D. So, yeah, they've, they've been gentle with me. Um, right. But, yeah, no, you know, I'm, I'm excited. You know, they're, they're both very different um, personalities. And and so far, you know, we're getting on okay. You know, it's um, – um, but there's no there's no doubt, you know, we're going we're gonna to have some trial and error. And that's the way you learn this job, you know. I mean, what before we kind of start to wrap things up, I mean, um, what sort of – I mean – what do you think is the most important quality based on what you've learned and you've got this massive opportunity? It's almost as if you're kind of starting from scratch again. It's, it's kind of wonderful. I'm, I'm so excited for you. But what do you think is the most important quality of a DS then? Um, it, it's having the ability to listen um, and to learn. And I think once you prepare to do that, then managing people and the, and the different you know mentalities and personalities is half the battle mm. and and is there any particular um managers over the years i mean not just in cycling in, in sport who you, who you kind of look to or hasn't that really figured have you just kind of found your own kind of way no i think i've always been pretty um independent and i've always done things my way um you know sometimes you look at you look at other teams and how they do things and you sort of maybe nib an idea here or there to make your infrastructure a little bit better. But essentially it's, you know, that's, that's how you build your infrastructure and your presentation of the team. And, and I mean, it's really, it's lovely to catch up with you. Um, but the, my final question, um, Shez, is, is what would you like to be your, your legacy? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. That's a uh, that's kind of when I hide behind a wall and don't <laughs> legacies and trailblazers and things. I'm just shit. But um, I don't know. You know, maybe maybe in twenty thirty years time, you know, there might be another ten more DSs like me operating at at, at a international level, world tour level. Um, um, I don't know. The girl that got it right? I don't know. I think I think that's enough. I think we can kind of leave it there because I think I know that's uh, I think that's fair, a, a fair point. And also, um, I'm sure slotted in there a Grand Tour winner and DS as well, probably in the mix there. I know that's one of your big laughs, isn't it? But uh, Shares, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. We could have talked for another hour or so. Um, shame about guess that snack. Uh, a little bit disappointed, but you can work on your skills yeah. and maybe uh, we can touch base uh, next year. And I'll probably see you on the road at some point. I'll be out at a few races next year as well. So no yeah. doubt our paths will cross. Um, but um, yeah, from me in uh, in Surrey, in Maloft, to you in Derby, in your, in your log cabin, it's goodbye and thanks that was great that's my pleasure thank you for having me and Merry Christmas everyone amazing stuff she's just one of those really inspirational sporting pioneers making impressions on so many people all across the globe thanks so much to Shez for her time and I really hope she gets some truly memorable results in 2021 and beyond thanks to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you for listening don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can be the first to hear our next episode early in 2021 I want to recommend it to your cycling buddies or even to Santa Claus if you happen to see him on his travels this Christmas and finally a huge thanks to Shez Pridham for being so generous with her time today cheers all goodbye and take care <laughs>